is Diagnosis Glaucoma with your hosts, Dr. Mona Colleen and Dr. Harry Quigley. Well, here you are back again on a podcast on Diagnosis Glaucoma. And today we have a very special guest to talk about the latest in angle closure glaucoma. Dr. David Friedman was a team member here at the Wilmer Eye Institute and now is the Conan Professor at uh, the Mass Eye and Ear Infirmary in Boston. He's the director of their glaucoma service. He's their head of medical research for that department. And David is probably the world expert or sort of one of two or three people who would be considered the world's expert on angle closure glaucoma, which has undergone a lot of changes recently. David, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Harry, for having me. The issue of angle closure glaucoma, as we mentioned, has changed relatively recently. And quickly, if you can tell the listeners how different is angle closure glaucoma from open angle glaucoma, the other major kind? Yeah, so angle closure glaucoma is a bit less common than open angle glaucoma, and it varies a little across different ethnic groups. Typically, people from Asia have higher rates than whites, but it's still prevalent and it accounts for probably about a third of glaucoma among whites. And angle closure glaucoma can be a little bit more severe in its presentation. So if you look at people that you've just identified with angle closure glaucoma, they're more likely to have substantial vision loss than newly diagnosed open angle glaucoma patients. And is the mechanism of it really quite different or is it pretty much the same as open angle glaucoma? Well, the ultimate mechanism, which is the death of cells in the retina, is the same, but the cause of pressure and pressure elevations in the eye are more clear with angle closure. We know that when the angle's closed, there can be cases where less fluid leaves the eye, and the eye is inflated by liquid, just like a balloon is inflated by air. And when the eye has a high pressure, glaucoma is much more common. And so we, you know, we think that in angle closure, a lot of the problem of damage to the optic nerve occurs because of eye pressure and eye pressure fluctuations. In open angle glaucoma, we see many people who get glaucoma even at lower pressures, and they probably have other factors playing a role as well in their development of glaucoma. When I was a resident in training, it was thought that angle closure glaucoma was all people getting a sudden very high pressure with extreme pain in the eye, and then they go blind very quickly. Is that the routine thing with angle closure? What's new that you and others have detected in studying populations of people with angle closure? Yeah, that's very interesting. I think the early researchers and clinicians really recognized these acute cases, which can be devastating. We did look at a population in Singapore and found that when an acute attack occurs, about one in 10 people can lose almost all the vision in the eye. And so those really stand out clinically, but they turn out to be much less common than the more chronic form, which is the vast majority of angle closure and angle closure glaucoma. Yeah, it is interesting that if you study a population of people who didn't come into the clinic, but they're just sitting at home, you can get a very different view of what a disease is. Do you think that's a major change in how we now understand eye disease and 
How have you been involved in that? Yeah, I think that that's been very impactful. And actually, a lot of this work started at Wilmer with you and with Al Summer, going door to door, finding everybody and looking at what the glaucoma presentation was like really helped us understand that there are, for example, with open angle glaucoma, much higher risks among African Americans than among whites. And over the years in Asia, through many of these studies, we recognize that angle closure is a more severe disease, and also that most of it is not symptomatic. Most people have asymptomatic, so it's just a slow process that unless you screen for and detect it, can go on and cause pretty significant vision loss. And in open-angle glaucoma, it was commonly known that it runs in families. So if you have a mom or a dad or brother or sister with it, you're more likely to get it. Is that now also thought to be true in angle closure? Yeah, Harry. Actually, there's uh, pretty good evidence now. There was a large study in Singapore where colleagues of mine, as well as myself, evaluated family members and found that there was almost a tenfold risk of having angle closure if you had a sibling with angle closure. So again, the same high likelihood if you have known family history these vague family histories where somebody says, I think I might have had a relative, are much less predictive of a possibility of having glaucoma. But if you have a real confirmed family history, it's definitely worth getting evaluated. You were involved in really the, one of the prime movers in a study with the fun name of ZAP. And that has seriously impacted everybody's way of thinking about this disease. Tell us about the ZAP study and what you think its major implications are. Yeah, one of the main reasons I went into public health research was to try to prevent blindness. And the ZAP study was one of the most important studies that I worked on. And Harry, thank you. You also were uh, tremendously involved in advising and assisting with that study. But we wanted to know, do people who have a condition that is before angle closure glaucoma, where they're just noted to have closed angles, but don't have any other diseases, don't have glaucoma, don't have high eye pressure, whether those people truly benefit from having a laser procedure that makes a hole in the iris. And that was routinely done and is routinely done in many parts of the world. And our question was, is that a safe thing to do to lots of people? And is it effective? Because if you feel it's safe and effective, then we should be screening for all those people and treating them. So we ended up deciding to enroll people at one large eye hospital in South China, and that was called Zhongshan Hospital, and that's part of Sun Yat-sen University. And we screened over 10,000 people to enroll about 1,000 people in a study that lasted for six years. And in that study, we lasered one eye and left the other eye untreated. These were all people who had no eye disease, but when you looked at the angle, it was closed. And we monitored those people for quite a long time every year or 18 months to see if they developed high eye pressures, if they developed some scarring in the angle because the iris can scar in the angle, or if they developed acute attacks. Should I keep going, Harry? 
This is the key of the study was what actually happened. Uh, was it different between the one eye of the person that got the laser iridotomy and the eye that was untreated? Right. The really important findings were, first, that very few events happened. So when we went into this study, there had been little published on the natural history of this condition. And what we found after watching these people was that the vast majority did not develop a problem. Less than 5% in the untreated arm over that time developed an endpoint, one of those three outcomes I described. But if you treated patients with an iridotomy, you did reduce that rate. So you could prevent some of those outcomes. When we looked more closely at the outcomes, there was really no difference in the number who developed high eye pressures. And in fact, very, very few did so. So converting from this closed angle to a high eye pressure, which we think is very likely to later on result in problems, glaucoma, was uncommon, very uncommon. And the vast majority of the reasons for the treatment failing was from the development of scarring in the angle, which we worry about. We think maybe over time that will lead to even further elevated pressures. But we didn't see that in the ZAP trial. We only saw a small number with those elevated pressures. And these were people that were followed for five or six years. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. So it really raised the question, does everyone need to have the laser? Now, the last endpoint, which was a very important one, was these acute attacks, because nobody wants to have an acute attack. I mentioned earlier that one out of 10 people who get an acute attack go on to lose most of the vision, but about half the people who have an acute attack don't lose any vision. They don't develop glaucoma. And so it's a bad, bad thing because it can harm your vision, but many do fine. And what we found in our study was that one person in the treated arm did have an acute attack, and five people in the untreated arm developed an acute attack. So there was a difference, although believe it or not, that was not considered a significant statistical difference, but it was a difference. Because the number is so small. The numbers are so small. Yeah, the numbers are just so small. And we were dilating patients. So one of the real concerns of doing lasers in an eye is it could cause cataract. And if you do lasers and cause cataract in developing countries, many people would lose vision from cataract and not get surgery in a timely fashion. In order to know if patients develop cataract, we had to dilate patients in this study. So in our study, three of the people in the control arm who developed an acute attack did so after dilation. So those are people who were dilated and that precipitated the attack. And that was true of the one person who had the iridotomy and was dilated. So the likelihood of developing an acute attack in this population without dilation was two cases out of the nearly 900 people followed for nearly six years. So that's very rare, very uncommon.
The interesting thing, of course, is you, you've got people who you knew what their baseline finding was, and they were being examined every year. And, you know, in our general clinical practice, yours and mine, as we see people, once you see somebody who's a suspect, you're probably going to continue seeing them just like in the ZAP study once a year. Whereas the person who has the acute attack who doesn't know they even have this problem can actually have an attack and it goes on for a while before they figure out what's going on. And those, I think, are the people who are more likely to actually suffer real consequences. Whereas the person who decided, I don't think I want the laser treatment, but you can watch me once a year and they know what symptoms to look for, they're a lot safer than somebody who's just you know, wandering around at home without any exams. Do you agree? Yeah, I completely agree, Harry. I think that routine laser iridotomy for patients that we see and can monitor is probably not indicated in most cases. There are certainly some people, people who need a dilated eye exam once a year for some other retinal problem, or you know, people who go to very remote locations for long periods of time and couldn't access care. But in general, I don't think it's necessary. And in fact, the UK, the United Kingdom, has decided in their guidelines to say that it is not indicated. Of course, patients can choose to have it done, and some do, but I think it's perfectly fine not to do it based on the results of this study. And coming back for a moment to family history, of course, if your mom had glaucoma, especially angle closure glaucoma, you might be more likely to say, well, you know, I don't want to have happened to me what happened to my mom. So maybe that kind of person would be more likely also to want to have the iridotomy. And the iridotomies actually didn't lead to much cataract, did they? No. So I couldn't agree more, Harry. The actual negative impacts on the eye were trivial and did not lead to long-term damage from doing the iridotomy. So doing one isn't the worst thing in the world. The reason we don't want to do it routinely is it can cause some symptoms. When you make a hole in the iris, some light gets through, and some people notice it and are bothered by it. And it's not common that people are bothered, probably about 1 in 30 or so. But when you are bothered by it, it, it matters. and you know, we don't want to cause harm when we're treating our patients. So that's one reason to avoid doing the iridotomy. So we've been talking about people who are in the sort of pre-angle closure stage and whether they ought to be treated. There was another study that looked at people who already had pretty high pressure, 30 or more, or they had damage to their optic nerve. And this was called the Eagle study. And once again, you and a friend of ours, Gus Gazard, were very closely associated with the Eagle study. What was the main finding there, and how does that impact how people can think about their treatment of real angle closure disease? Sure. So the EAGLE trial is really quite an impressive study. This was initiated by Augusto Azuaro Blanco, and as you said, Gus Gazard played a key role, Paul Foster, and I also helped with the design. And this was a study that really asked a question that was pretty hard to imagine asking. The question was, can we remove the lens in the eye, which isn't a cataract, just the lens, in patients who have angle closure glaucoma? And the argument was there were several good studies showing that you got significant pressure lowering just by taking out the lens. And these were in patients with cataracts. So it was a big shift. It was a real mindset change to remove clear lenses. 
And the reason that's true is cataract surgery has its own set of risks. And so to actually make a patient undergo an operation when you could treat them with medicines or other treatments was a really brave approach. And the people we decided to enroll in that study either had angle closure glaucoma and somewhat elevated eye pressure, or they had elevated eye pressure that was very high and angle closure. And the reason those people were included is they almost certainly, had you looked at them six months, a year later, would be developing glaucoma. And in order to carry out a study so large as this one, you had to have a lot of people. And you weren't going to get them all with just angle closure glaucoma. So this study was done at multiple sites across the globe, mainly in the United Kingdom, but also in sites in Asia, Australia. And they enrolled, you know, over 200 people in each arm and had really convincing findings. So the eyes were randomized to either get the lens removed or to have the laser, the iridotomy, and then medicines as needed. And the main outcome was quality of life because the United Kingdom healthcare system, which funded this, likes to know that the procedures you do to people or the treatments you give are beneficial to quality of life. And they use a very simple outcome measure, which is a patient's answer to five questions about how they live their lives, whether they have difficulty doing things, anxiety, and other things. And ultimately, the removal of the lens led to a stable answer to the question about quality of life over the three years of follow-up. And the people who got the iridotomy and the medicines actually had a decline in their quality of life. And so overall, that endpoint was better in the patients who had their lenses removed. And the reason for this, I think, is even though lenses can look clear, there's always a little bit of cataract in people in their 50s and up, which this study included only people 50s and older. And so there was a vision benefit, a true vision benefit. And also, patients were often needing glasses all the time, even for far and near. And with this surgery, distance vision could be corrected with having basically cataract surgery. So patients probably had better walking around vision as well in the treated arm. I don't think it would be likely that just the pressure control or the glaucoma management was the key to that outcome. But if you look at pressure control, it was much better in the lens extraction group. So people who had the lens extraction group had about a millimeter and a little bit more better pressure, and they were on far fewer medicines. About 60% were on no medicines with that kind of pressure lowering from a mean in the high 20s to a mean in the mid-teens. That's a massive pressure lowering and was really an impressive result. So do you think this has changed and will change how angle closure real disease, the pressure is already up or they've already got nerve damage, is this going to change, is it changing how doctors take on the treatment of this disorder? 
Yeah, it's very interesting how people have reacted to this study. I think that there's, you know, a, a definite uptake. I've seen a lot more of it. It's widely followed in many parts of Asia. But if you go to some other countries, like I just visited India, and many people aren't yet ready to do it in their population. In the U.S., I think a lot of doctors are much more willing and promote early lens extraction in this condition. I certainly do. I think the results support it. One could also argue that, you know, do the laser and see how the patient does, because about 20% of people had good pressure lowering and were on no medicines in the laser arm. That said, I wouldn't go down the pathway of multiple medicines after the laser, because I think those patients fundamentally did worse. And I think removing the lens solved the problem for those patients. Another way of looking at this is people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s are going to have cataract surgery. And in fact, over 10% of patients in this study who were felt to have clear lenses three years earlier had cataract surgery for vision, not just for pressure. And many also had it for pressure control. So taking out the lens is going to happen. And the risks of cataract surgery are low. And so for me, if it were my eye, I would have the lens out early to try to avoid long-term problems from pressure elevations that can occur without the lens being removed. Well, you and your colleagues have also been very closely associated with studies that would answer the question for a patient who might think they might have this disease, what kind of testing should I have that would show that I have the potential, the real potential for angle closure disease? Is it a clinical test the doctor does with instruments or is it some kind of a fancy imaging test? Yeah, that really is an important point, Harry. There are really great imaging devices on the market now that are quite expensive and not in wide use. And there's also what we do in the office, which is we hold a lens on the eye and we look at the angle clinically. And at this point, there is no evidence that those terrific new machines, which I think someday will be part of practice, add that much value to what we know from looking. And the people at the greatest risk are the people who have more quadrants, more parts of the angle closed. And that's not surprising. They're anatomically more severe in some ways. So right now, I don't for clinical purposes, use imaging devices to look at the angle unless there's something exceptional about the angle when I'm looking at it. We've also done other podcasts. So for those who say, gee, this was a pretty sophisticated podcast, where can I get some more basic information? We have podcasts that on just the primary angle closure disease, what's it like? Why would a neurodotomy help? What is this test uh, Dr. Friedman's talking about called gonioscopy that is really still the definitive test? And you can go back in previous uh, podcasts here on diagnosis glaucoma and listen to those. Well, David, I, I really thank you for taking your valuable time for doing a podcast with us. I hope we can do another one in the future. And we'll redirect everybody to diagnosisglaucoma.com for all this good information. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, your mom says take your drops. 